Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. As we speak, the British government is still stuck on Brexit. But the American government is not just stuck, it is shut. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I have with me Helen Thompson and Gary Gerstel. The last time we were together was the morning after the night before of the midterm elections. And actually, even on that morning, it changed quite quickly after we spoke because it looked a bit better for Trump in the hours after the vote. And in the days that followed, it got a bit worse. The Senate tightened up a bit, though he still got his majority there. But he lost seats in the House at the upper end, actually, I think almost beyond the upper end of the worst case scenarios for him. Lots of seats in California that hadn't declared yet fell. So we now have that House in place, and it is strongly democratic. There's a solid majority there, though we'll talk in a second about how solid the unity is. But one thing that we try and do in this podcast is give a bit of historical perspective. So I'm going to turn to Gary on this to start with. US government shutdowns have become a thing. They're a relatively recent phenomenon, starting, I think, in the Reagan years, these disputes about the budget. Often they're symbolic, sometimes they're consequential. The one that most people remember as being really consequential was the Clinton-Gingrich shutdown in 1996. How did that one end? I mean, how did they get out of it when, when you have a real impasse in the, in the US system, as we have now, and it looks like there's no way out? How did that one get resolved? Well, that shutdown was a shock. It lasted for 21 days. It was started by Newt Gingrich, who had a great deal of confidence because he was Speaker of the House, and the Republicans in 1994 had just won both houses of Congress, which is not an easy feat for them to accomplish, and they felt emboldened to take on Clinton, and they had become an anti-government party, which meant the government was the problem. Let's try and constrain it in any way we can. They were frustrated with conventional notions of reform, and they were being prompted by Grover Norquist and others who would say, let's shrink the size of the government until we can drown it in a bathtub. And that inclined them to more dramatic measures. Plus, it was the dawn of the age of talk radio, shock radio, wasn't it, as well? Yes. In, in that we're now in the, the internet version of this, but there was a lot of noise out there from Rush Limbaugh and others. About pressure sh- shut it down, take a more radical measure. And Newt Gingrich saw himself as a leader of a group of radicals in Congress. And they put severe cuts in the budget. Uh, Bill Clinton refused to sign it because it was going to shred the safety net, the welfare state of America. And he said, if you force this budget on me, I'm not going to sign it. And you will compel me to shut the government down. And uh, Newt Gingrich said, go right ahead. We're going to win this fight. And that fight lasted 21 days, which was an extraordinary amount of time. Should be said, we're quite a long way beyond that. With yes. This shutdown. And uh, no one for a long time thought that an- anyone would get beyond that period of time. And now, now we have exceeded it. There was a court of public opinion that mattered. There was a sense that despite the new media, that there were established media that could arbitrate this and report on it and that people listening and watching the news could respect. And Gingrich made some key mistakes, wanting to flatter his ego, which made him look rather ridiculous, especially complaining he had not received fair treatment on the flight back from Rabin's funeral in Israel. That caused him to take a huge hit in the court of public opinion. As and, and there was a famous front page, I think, in the in the New York Daily News, crybaby, the picture of Gingrich. Yes. In his nappies. Yes, yes. Wailing his eyes out. And one can say he had never has entirely recovered from that moment. And from that, the Republican Party began to feel as though it had gone too far. The government was shut down for too long. Clinton held firm at one of his best moves as president. And uh, his winning that, the Republicans caving and recognizing that they could not get what they wanted in that instance, then prepared the way for Clinton's unexpected re-election in 1996. And in a way, there are two potential lessons from that for now, one of which is don't cave. I mean, in a sense that there was a clear winner and a loser from that. And the losers were the people who blinked first. So that could entrench both sides. But the other lesson is there is this thing called the court of public opinion. But people might say now, well, what is that now? I mean, it's not like a newspaper front page 
is going to set the agenda or decide this. It's not like there is a respected source of impartial news that will somehow arbitrate this. That's all gone, hasn't it? Well, there still is public opinion. And, yeah, sure. Uh, it's clear it's just, that, is it a court it's that clear, has a verdict? Well, you have opinion polling and Trump's disapproval rating has gone up by about four or five points. Including in some key demographics, I think. Whether you can say that's attributable to the shutdown is obviously open to question, but presumably part of it is at least attributable to that. I think there is another difference, though, between the, the two situations in that... Gingrich thought he was making some grand ideological stand for this thing that he'd called the contract for America when the many of the Republicans who were running for in the House of Representatives in particular in the 1994 elections. The position he'd staked for the Republicans wasn't about one issue. This is about actually a particular issue. That is, is a potential for compromise about funding the war or some version of the war. And so in that sense, I think it's it's actually not so difficult in principle to deal with because it's not actually as personal as it was. And I might be personal on the president's side this time, but is as there is a policy issue which has been long-standing disagreement both between the parties and within the parties, and it is in principle possible to resolve that. Now, public opinion, I think, on that issue is actually also quite complicated. So you could see a way in which if it becomes clear that actually public opinion is drifting towards saying we have to do something about security of the border, that, that puts Trump in a stronger position. If it moves away and says, no, the first priority is, is we have to deal humanely, particularly with the groups of people called the Dreamers, the people who came to America as children without formal immigration um, status, then it moves in the, in the Democrats' direction. So I, I don't think we're in a completely different world in this respect. But in a way, if it's, if it's more tractable, because it's less ideological, why does it look more intractable? I mean, at the moment, it looks to me, compared to Gingrich, Clinton, much, much more entrenched. I mean, it could be to do with the personalities, it could be to do with the stakes, I'm not sure. What, why is this one, given it's about a wall and funding a wall, why does it look so much harder to resolve? I think it has to do with Trump and his evaluation of his political future. There have been two deals on the table, which both sides were very close to enacting. One in the fall, a, a substantial piece of wall in return for citizenship for dreamers, the illegal immigrants brought to the United States as young children, and there was a broad agreement in, in America and Congress to give them citizenship uh, in return for significant portions of the wall. That was almost agreed to in the fall, in October. And then there was another deal almost agreed to in December. And Trump was ready to sign on for it. And McConnell actually put it on his desk because he thought he had a promise from Trump to do that. And then Trump blew it up because on mass media, on Fox News, the right-wingers, the conservatives went crazy, saying this is the fundamental portrayal of everything you, you stand for. This is what you ran on. This is why we believe in you. You're a coward. And then he backed down, and he said, I must stick with my base. And this has something to do with his own analysis of where he stands politically in relationship to the future, which we still don't understand enough about, but it is related to the midterms and his loss of any support except his base. And he has made a decision now that his only political future lies with his base. And that is what he has to satisfy. It's almost as if he's given up any hope of reaching out beyond his base to forging a coalition that might get him the presidency in 2020. I think he's thinking about mobilization of the base. We'll take care of that. And once that's taken care of, we can worry about other things. Now, whether this means he's accepting that he's going to be a one-term president or whether this is actually sowing chaos that might simply produce a, a broader crack in the electorate that might bring him votes for 2020. That is what's really hard to I discern. I think he's retreated from that position, though, because if you look at what he was proposing over the weekend, he had quite a number of some of his long-standing, more Republican establishment opponents in the Senate saying, we agree with you. So Marco Rubio in particular was actually quite supportive of Trump over the weekend. Even Romney was sort of saying he would back what Trump was proposing over the weekend. So I think he's conceded actually quite a lot to the Republicans in the Senate and moved his position closer to theirs. I think it is now more of a, a standoff between the Senate and the House, with Trump obviously on the majority in the Senate's side, and less a straightforward Trump versus everybody else. There is one bit of the court of public opinion that he does respect, apparently, which is TV ratings. And the word is that he was really distressed by the fact that his primetime broadcast, when he tried to speak to the nation, not only was it a bit of a damp squib, not that many people watched it. Mm -hmm. And we do actually know, I mean, seriously, we know about Trump that one of his measures of success is 
TV ratings. And that may have slightly chastened him. Yes, he has put something on the table that he wasn't willing to put on the table a week or two ago and in the form of a, a three-year extension of living rights in the U.S. for dreamers. But Mitch McConnell in the Senate still doesn't know what Trump will sign when he brings something to him. And he's made it very clear, and I believe him on this, that he's not going to bring a deal there unless he can get a signature out of him. So there have been some concessions. Both uh, House of Representatives and the Senate have gotten much more nervous about this and the impact on the workers, the economy, the reputation of the federal government. But I think what Trump has really got to do remains a mystery. So I can't, I don't share your confidence that certainly the, the elements of the deal are, are in place. But if there's another explosion from his base about signing a deal, we don't know what he's got to do. I don't want to do the Brexit comparison much, but I just want to touch on one aspect of it, because there are some slightly uncanny parallels here. And one is that there is a desire, I think, among many members of the legislature to kind of find out what would pass. And the executive is a barrier in the way of that, because, as you say, it's not worth finding out what would pass the legislature unless you know what the executive would sign off on. And yet there is this kind of desire to test the waters. Can we have some votes, some indicative votes? And this is one of the things that you hear, both coming from the Senate and from the House, trying to put some deals on the table and sort of feel out, slightly bypassing Trump, what if Trump weren't the obstacle you could get through? And there's, there are some echoes there with what's happening around Brexit, this feeling that the members of the legislature need to find some way of communicating with each other around this great barrier, which is the executive, if they're going to work out something that will eventually be the deal. Does the American system allow for that? I mean, we're discovering that the British system probably doesn't unless there is a dramatic change, which that may be coming. Does the American system allow for these kind of indicative It doesn't votes? allow for it formally, but th- those who are expert in congressional procedure can find a way to make that happen. And the news coming out last night, there's some movement of proposals that weren't expected to pass. But if they could be floated, if they could get sufficient votes, they would then become indicators of something. And they were coming out of the Senate. They were coming out of the Senate, but there's also quite a lot of discussion in the House right now as well. But primarily the Senate, uh, the House is involved in this now. So something of that sort is going on. I think there's a fundamental difference, though, and that is, is that the United States has two houses of its Congress, and one of them is controlled by one party, and one of them is controlled by the other party. And that isn't in play in the British case. Well, maybe we won't go down that road. In a way, it is, in that the House of Lords is controlled by the Remain party, and the Commons is still formally controlled by the It is, but we're some way... In, it's not, I mean, it's we're, nothing we're like... We're some way from a confrontation in Brexit that's going to involve the House of Lords. Although we um, did, there was a point where it looked like that might be the... Anyway. I mean, what is, I think, you know, worth thinking about is, is that if the Senate is sort of, or the Republican majority, I should say, in the Senate is consolidating around a position that may just about be acceptable to Trump, at least on a good day. And the House Democrats are becoming more divided, as it looks like that they may be. Then there becomes a possibility that enough House Democrats can be peeled away in order to get something through the House that could also get through the Senate. And it is clear, I think, that some of the centrists, Democrats in the House, are getting somewhat concerned. I mean, the Democrats are at risk of moving themselves a long way from a position that they held themselves not that long ago. I mean, by that on the wall issue itself. Gary, what's your sense of it? Because the other way that these things can resolve themselves is that not just public opinion breaks one way, but party divisions come more to the fore on one side than the other. Both parties have deep divisions in them. Is your feeling about this that the the democratic divisions at least potentially run deeper? I think the Democratic divisions potentially do run deeper because there is now a robust Democratic left in the House and they have declared themselves and now the center in the House is declaring itself and they have very different ambitions. One is to imagine a different kind of politics for America and another is to legislate responsibly with the broad coalition of the American electorate and that has surfaced on this immigration issue. It is also true that the sympathies of the general public for immigration issues are is not inexhaustible. It's a humanitarian issue for a lot of Americans, and other things can quickly push that out of the way. There may also be the reaction, which is that we have other things we have to do and, and get done, and nothing is getting done right now. And that may be the centrist position of the Democrats in the House in terms of formulating a different position, which then may lay the basis with 
portions of the Republican Party. Another similarity between Brexit and the U.S. is that both legislatures are in crisis. They're not functioning as they're supposed to. They're, they have no script for moving to a direction where they, they need to move. And you see an extraordinary amount of fumbling and uncertainty. One of the risks of this, of course, is a further diminution of the reputation of Congress uh, among the American people, already low, but a sense that this is a broken institution that can't take care of the fundamental issues that confront the nation. And one of the fundamental issues that confronts the nation is that the government must be open for work. It's extraordinary that this has happened. And I think with all the chatter about what kind of deal there would be, we must not underestimate the corrosive effect that this shutdown and the length of it is going to have on attitudes toward government in America and whether Congress is an institution that can operate effectively in in a political sense. So does that potentially at least favor the side that is suspicious of government in the sense that, and I think this does go back again to the Gingrich example too, but he he chickened out before this could be tested. But if you've got one group of people who basically believe that no government is better than government and another group of people that are fully committed to the idea that government is a force for good and government stops, as it drags on longer and longer, does it favor the side who say, we don't need this? It well might. And also the the majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, is a master of the Senate, but unlike past master of the Senate who built their mastery on using procedures to get great legislation passed, I'm thinking of Lyndon Johnson, he has built his reputation on being the great obstructionist. He is a master of procedure to the point where he can stop anything. He stopped all of Obama. And if you ask what is a legislative agenda that he wants to act on, or what is a legislative agenda that Trump wants to act on, you have to think hard. He's got his tax cut. He's got dozens of judges through, which was his other big ambition. In a sense, he's happy. He's He's got what he wants, which means he feels he has less to lose if he stretches this out longer. The only issue that would get him to move is if he began to feel that 2020 was beginning to get out of reach, not simply in terms of the presidency, but in terms of the continuation of a Senate majority in the Senate. I mean, there are also the economic consequences. I mean, the other thing that he has to bear in mind is that you keep the government shut. And there are various figures that have floated around, but it knocks a portion of a percentage point of GDP for each week it continues. I think that you can't really frame this one round government versus anti-government, because the thing that Trump wants done is a government act. It's about spending money. It's about spending money on building a wall. It's saying that the state is not doing enough to protect what states should do, as far as he's concerned, which is, in the first instance, protect their borders. So, you know, Trump isn't an anti-government Republican. He's actually much more pro-government in any number of ways than what the ideologues around Newt Gingrich and co were like in the in the 1990s, or indeed some of the Republicans in the Senate. And I think also there's the underlying issue for Congress that has made all these budget questions and debt questions much more difficult that keeps coming up around these government shutdowns. It came up around the last one with Obama and Congress in 2013, which is the debt ceiling, which has got to be dealt with again in the summer. The debt ceiling will have to be extended. So as soon as we're over this one, we're going to be soon into a likely confrontation over the next one. So there is an underlying fiscal issue that for, well, for the best part of a decade now, Congress has proven itself extremely incapable of dealing with it, simply deals with the issue of kicking it back into touch. And again, I don't think that is a straightforwardly government versus anti-government position either. Because again, Trump is not on the side of the fiscal conservatives. He's not. Yes, and you could imagine, I, I agree, Helen, this is a very serious issue. One of the uh, solutions being proposed is that the government will be reopened until February 8th, and then there'll have to be another debate and another resolution to keep it open longer, which underscores the severity of the crisis. They're talking about short-term solutions. There's an underlying very serious problem here. One of the possible solutions is that Trump, who is pro-government, or he's neutral on government, he will use government as a tool if he thinks it's useful. He's not a, he's by no means an anti-government ideologue. One of the possibilities is a coalition between him and members of the Democratic House to use government in a populist way for a grand infrastructure program, for expenditures for ma- massive cuts in prescription drugs. There is a possibility of a politics that would bring Trump and the Democrats together in a very productive way that might lead to a long-term fiscal breakthrough 
But this has been floated a number of times over the last few years, and occasionally he talks to Chuck and Nancy as his friends. Where yes, we're going to do this. He's not friends with Nancy now. Not friends with Nancy now, but he breaks friendships and gets new friends very quickly. It's not clear that that can happen. And here the cultural issue and the cultural symbolism of the wall becomes extraordinarily important too, which goes to the heart of what is America and who is America for? And is America going to be what it once was? Or is it going to be a place swamped by all these groups of inferior peoples who want to take what's ours? And damn it, we're not going to give it to them. So that becomes an element of this debate. And it's not clear that Trump can surmount that, given his commitment to the wall and to that very traditional racialized image of America. It's not clear he can get beyond that, which he would have to do to work with the Democrats. Because the other thing this cuts across as we speak, it's been framed as Pelosi versus Trump in terms of the leading personalities, but we're also in the foothills of the Democratic primary race for the presidential nomination I say the foothills, but there are already more candidates have announced than I could name or even necessarily recognize. But these things are going to cut across each other. And of course, to win the nomination, it's very hard to see, as that drives the politics of one party, how a centrist or compromiser is going to win that primary. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but it it feels to me like not compromising with Trump is going to be a very important badge that anyone will have to have. I mean, that's why any idea that Trump had when he first came in that he could work with Nancy Pelosi is now completely out of the window because she can't work with him because of the pressure that she's on from the left in the Democratic Party. And as as you say, as the nomination race escalates, accelerates, then that is going to become an ever greater constraint. So I want to get on to Mueller in a second. But last mention of Brexit. But we are at that point with this where we can speculate about possible resolutions. And there's a political logic perhaps behind some of them. But then when you feed that logic into where we are, particularly with the personalities involved, and also the pressures on all sides from various forms of public opinion, it's really hard to get to a resolution. Now, presumably, like with Brexit, we can't stay here forever. I mean, it has to be resolved. I, I assume it has to be resolved. And I have read one or two people saying it's really bringing out the difference between American and European politics. You, know, you shut down the French government, not least because it employs half the French population, and, and the entire country is out on the streets. And though there, there's a lot of polling, there's not a lot of public protest. I mean, there's not a lot of actual resistance around this yet. Would that grow? I mean, there are. Is it 800,000 people who are not being paid? This year. Um, yeah. But it is a partial shutdown. It's not. A, I mean, what would it do to get people out on the streets? Uh, this would be solved in a day if the security people at the airport walked off their jobs, and no one in America could fly, or if the air traffic controllers, who by the way are not being paid, said we're not going to work anymore until we're being paid. This would end in a day. But what stands behind this is first the law, which says federal workers can't go on strike, and then secondly. Uh, Ronald Reagan in 1981, when the air traffic controllers did go on strike, firing all 11,000 of them, saying you will never come to work for the United States government again. And that is the moment of trauma from which modern labor has been born. And it's an extraordinary achievement by a conservative Republican to delegitimate public resistance and to confine and to limit what workers can do. And uh, that has not been talked about, but that, you can be sure, is on people's minds. That's there in the folk memory of many and American workers. And the memory of the union leaders who worry that something similar might happen. I actually think it wouldn't happen. It would be quite bold. There would be quite a lot of sympathy. And I think you have to get wealthy people in America hugely inconvenienced by this, and then it would end in a day. But you're right. There has not been that kind of public demonstration of resistance. There have, there have been no demonstrations in the street. If you think of some of the actions taken in the 1930s and the labor uprising, people sitting down at their workplaces and say, we will not be moved until this matter is settled. If a TSA worker is at the airports did that, this would be over in a day. And it's a mark of the weakness of labor and, and part of what is missing in American politics, that this doesn't seem to be on anybody's Mine. I think Barbara Ehrenreich called for a strike, but it didn't resonate with anyone. It's it's really striking that no one is talking and about is that. Is the left faction of the New Democratic Congress not calling for labor action? I mean, no. you'd think, so, as it were, the Ocasio-Cortez position is not 
Labour solidarity. She's calling for a lot of things. but She sure is calling for a lot of things. But she has not yet called for an action on the part of government workers to shut the entire government down. That would end this in a day. I mean, that's old left politics, and um, she doesn't represent old left politics in that respect. There's elements of some of the things that she talks about, including in relation to taxation and sometimes in relation to what she talks about, about debt and how to pay for um, things that do, I think, echo back to that older left-wing politics, but it's not the focus of where her agenda is. So in that sense, what's happening in, in the Democratic Party is interesting because it's taken the Democratic Party to the left without going back to the, the place, the central place that Labour had in the old Democratic left. So, so does this mean that the resolution will, in the end, have to be something that comes out of the legislature, some back and forth between the two houses, and it will happen in the next week, few weeks. I mean, it's we can't keep going that much longer. Yes, with this. it either has to be that, or it has to be a, a labor awakening of a sort that sometimes happens, where frustrated, angry workers. If you think of the number of people affected by this, eight hundred thousand workers. You think of their families. If you think of all the meals not being served uh, in Washington and all the contractors not being paid, you know, several million people are affected by this. Sometimes anger does lead to a breakthrough. That is less likely than some kind of legislative solution. So I, th- uh, I think it's probable that the resolution will have to come in Congress. Uh, but a little pressure from the street would make a huge difference. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, let's do uh, impeachment now. <laughs> I haven't talked about that for a while. And related to that, the Mueller inquiry and related to that, everything that surrounds the Mueller inquiry. You've been in the States for a considerable period since we last spoke. What is the feeling now around, with this new house in place, around the possibility that there is a real appetite to impeach the president? There is a feeling that the Mueller inquiry is going to, this is what I heard just informally, going to deliver uh, some very bad news for the Trump administration, uh, certainly for his family, not clear for Trump himself. So when you say informally, not on BuzzFeed. This is just conjecture, but the discourse has changed somewhat in that way. I think in the House itself, there are deep divisions about whether to proceed with impeachment proceedings or not. Um, There's one argument that says, this is what we've been waiting for. This man is unfit to hold the presidency. We can now bring him to court so to speak. And that's what we were elected to do. And that's what we have to do. There's another opinion in the House, and I think Nancy Pelosi holds this right now, that if you do the electoral calculations, it's better to keep a weakened, wounded Trump in office until 2020 and then oust him, Uh, that this is a better political calculation and strategy. And I think that's the one she supports uh, right now. With the risk, as you said earlier, that well, it's not quite two years, but it's a long time. And it could crack open in various ways that we haven't foreseen. Yes, it carries with it very, very substantial risks. And we must not underestimate, because we have underestimated, Trump's ability as a counterpuncher and an improviser. If he sees a new terrain opening up, you really don't know where he's going to take it. I think from the point of view of the House Democrats who want to proceed with impeachment proceedings, the only coherent reason to do it is in order to try to impress Democratic primary voters of saying how serious the Democratic Party is about confronting Trump because there simply isn't I mean unless something radically changes and obviously maybe Mueller will deliver something that radically changes but right now there are not votes in the Senate to remove Donald Trump from office because the Republicans control the Senate so the chances of it being anything other than a symbolic gesture. Now, that symbolic gesture may yield political capital, particularly for somebody who's running for the Democratic nomination, but it is not a strategy to remove Donald Trump from office as things stand at the moment. When you said, Gary, that you hear that there might be seriously bad news for the president, do we have a sense of what the threshold is that turns this from a partisan fight where Republicans circle the wagons around their president 
to Republicans in the Senate thinking, oh my God, we need to cut this guy loose? A serious prosecution case against members of his family in the Mueller report. Not not him himself, his family. That may happen, it may not happen. But I think the the chances are that the cases against some of his family members may be quite strong. And if the report is very damning, and if it is made public, and we (laughs) neither of these things... Is, is known, I think the pressure for impeachment in, in the House is going to be irresistible, regardless of the primaries. In other words, the, the pressure to proceed. Right. So I, there's the pressure for impeachment, but there's what will peel off the Republicans I in the think Senate. That it has to be, for it to be impeachable in the sense of removing him from office to get some Senate Republicans to shift, there has to be something on the central allegation about collusion. Involving the president himself. Involving the president himself, or at least that he knew about members of his team who were engaged in it and gave it some green light, you know, tacit consent. Because, I mean, that is why in the first instance the Mueller inquiry was set up. Now, obviously, it's it's gone into investigating all kinds of other things, including the Trump family's finances and business deals. But anything that doesn't deliver, I think, on the central purpose of the inquiry is going to be relatively easily presented as, to use Trump's own language, a witch hunt. I mean, we're already in the expectations game. So we had this BuzzFeed report saying that they had heard that the Mueller investigation had discovered that Trump had instructed Cohen to lie, which then the Mueller investigation denied. And we've had Rudy Giuliani dancing backwards and forwards on this question. Um, I just want to read you, there's a fantastic interview with him in The New Yorker, Isaac Chotiner, who's um, who's become their interviewer-in-chief, caught Giuliani on the way to the shower on the phone, and Giuliani said, I can't talk to you. And then clearly 20 minutes later, he was still talking. And they talk about the questions that Giuliani has been facing recently about um, where the threshold is for him as what counts as the president having done something wrong. But he also asked Giuliani whether he feels personally worried that this is going to be his legacy. And this is what Giuliani said in response. Absolutely. I'm afraid it will be on my gravestone. Rudy Giuliani, he lied for Trump. Somehow, I don't think that will be it. But if it is, what do I care? I'll be dead. I figure I can explain it to St. Peter. He will be on my side because I am so far... Pause. I don't think, as a lawyer, I have ever said anything that's untruthful. I have a sense of ethics that's as high as anybody you can imagine. I've been doing this forever. I am doing what I believe in. I love the way he kind of goes from confessional mode to he finds his inner Trump and he comes out at the end, I am the most ethical man you could possibly imagine, having expressed some doubts that St. Peter would see it that way. I mean, this captures, I think, the whole BuzzFeed Giuliani thing captures a flavour of what might be coming, which is, it goes back to that thing about in the court of public opinion, do we know any more what counts as an impeachable offence? There could be so much dancing around this. I mean, it's going to have to be so unequivocal, isn't it? My feeling is even if it's the family, there are ways that Trump can be insulated from that. I think they've got to get the man himself. Well, there are two parts to the impeachment question. One is to impeach someone, which is a majority vote in the House. And the other is to convict in the Senate uh, and remove someone from office. If we look at the impeachment process historically, uh, for those wanting to impeach, impeachment has been enough. With Andrew Johnson in the 1860s, he was impeached by the House, not convicted by the Senate, so he remained in office. But it paved the way for radical reconstruction and, and what the liberals of the time wanted. And the Republicans in the 1990s with Clinton, they did not destroy Clinton, but they destroyed Democratic continuity and paved the way for the election of George W. Bush in 2000. So the calculation that the Democrats may be making is not can we convict him, because I agree convicting him in the Senate is going to take an extraordinary demonstration of courage and principle on the part of Republicans in the Senate that I would say we've not seen for some time. But the calculation may be this is the way to damage him. This is the way to get the facts out to the American people. This is the way to really corner him and limit the damage that he can do in his remaining two years. This is the way to pave the way to a Democratic victory in 2020. This is something that our candidates can take to the voters. Now, that may be the calculation they make. It may be the wrong calculation for the reason we talked earlier. But impeachment does not necessarily require conviction for the process to unfold. No, I mean, I think the other thing we've got to bear in mind in terms of the calculating the risks in relation to this is, is as you said, 
earlier, um, Gary, then Trump is a quite effective counterpuncher. Now, I think that he lost quite an effective counterpuncher on his behalf when the Republicans lost control of the House because the House Intelligence Committee was effectively counterpunching for him in a reasonably effective way in regard to the counterintelligence operation by the FBI and the Justice Department in 2016 into the Trump campaign. And now that House Intelligence Committee is being controlled by Democrats. And I think already you can see there are fewer stories, not none, fewer stories coming out on that side of things. But he still does have the Senate and he has a Senate Judiciary Committee. And it's quite clear, I think, from what Lindsey Graham's been saying in recent days, that Lindsey Graham will counterpunch for him on these issues. And there is a vulnerability for the Democrats in that. So they they don't just, if you like, get to open the veil on what was going on with Trump. They risk opening the veil at the same time on what was going on with the FBI and the and the Justice Department. I agree with you. It's a it's a risky strategy, but it may pit the strategists against the grassroots who want impeachment at all costs. And and this is where the division of the Democratic Party plays into calculations about whether there will be uh, impeachment proceedings. I think the pressure if the Mueller report comes out, if it has 50% of what we think it might contain, if it is made public in a reasonable way, I think the pressure for impeachment proceedings is going to be overwhelming. And do you think he'll get a different lawyer? No, Giuliani is with him to the end. <laughs> this is a very unfair question, given that it's such early days. And we've got one more thing to talk about, which is Trump and Syria and so on. And these things all connect. But Gary, do you have a sense of who is the front runner at this point in the Democratic nomination process? Or some of the things that we've been talking about, whom is it likely to benefit? Say we go down the impeachment route. Say the Pelosi calculation gets slightly overtaken by a, a more direct, from that other side of the party, drive to confront the president. Does it benefit some candidates? Do you have a feeling for this yet? Well, it's going to be such a horse race. Uh, any predictions now would be pie in the sky. Get that ready. said, uh, get <laughs> I ready. feel one coming. Well, not exactly. Get ready for uh, spectacular theatrics. The primary season for American politics is great political theater, with some of the greatest in the world. Whether it translates into effective governing is another question. I think what we can identify is that there are going to be three major groups of candidates vying for the nomination, and they're going to be in conflict with each other. One group are what I call the political economy of the left. Uh, that's Elizabeth Warren and Sanders. There is what we might call the multicultural left or identity politics left, and that's Kamala Harris and, and Cory Booker. And then there are uh, centrists, Andrew Cuomo, um, Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown, although he oh, over they haven't declared yet. Uh, I think Sherrod Brown, he will declare. Uh, Cuomo is a possibility, although he denies it. Bloomberg may, may get into that and would fit into that category. And this is a group that says the Democratic Party must be to the center and get those suburban Republican voters if we're going to have a chance in 2020. And these are the three these are going to be the three main lines of debate within the primaries. And it's going to be a free for all and it's going to be a long and very interesting season. And I think those kinds of debates can be very healthy for the party because this is the first time in 30 years the Democratic Party has not been under the sway of the Clintons or Obama. And it is a moment of great opening and opportunity. There are some who wish there was a senior figure of the party who could get them through this moment of crisis with Trump. That doesn't exist. And so it's got to be a, a wide open campaign, I think quite similar to the 2016 primary campaign in the Republican Party. You say great theater. My heart sinks at the thought of the actual debates. I mean, so those Republican debates were great theater, but for one reason alone, Trump. You take Trump out of it and you just had the others, too many of them lined up on the stage the thought of the debates with this number of candidates and without a kind of genuine disruptor on the stage makes my heart sink. I think there is something that is really going to be interesting about the number of candidates, because if you look at what happened the last two times that the Democratic nomination has essentially been contested, so in 2008 and 2016, essentially we've had small fields and the candidate who has emerged as the most popular with African-American voters in Democratic primaries early has ended up with the nomination and ended up with the nomination really by locking that vote in, so winning very large majorities. So Obama first, then Hillary. And Hillary. And it's interesting that Hillary 
effectively repudiated her entire 2008 strategy to replicate what Obama had done in 2008 in this respect. And that's what costs Sanders. And that's what costs Sanders. So now, if somebody emerges quickly who is able to do that this time, I think that person will win the nomination again. The interesting thing this time, though, is, is if you have a large field, does that mean that it isn't going to be possible for one person to do that? early. So if that doesn't happen early, then I think this nomination really does become very contested. But if one of the candidates, one of the or at least one of the blocks of groups of candidates as you describe them, if they between them can lock up the African American vote, then one of them will end up with the nomination. In a way it's the last really wide open one was I hope I'm not missing some out here, was ninety two and Bill Clinton coming through where the, you know, it was really unknown in, in that I case. I think that, that Kerry, I don't think it was really clear from the beginning that Kerry was going to win the nomination in 2004, by March maybe, but right, right. not right at the start. If you remember, there was the whole Howard Dean start to the 2004 contest. But the Bill Clinton one does show that the Democratic Party is quite capable of surprising us. Yes, and I think the American political system is quite capable of, of surprising us with candidates. In other words, people can come out of nowhere very quickly, and if they get the megaphone and the platform and uh, win eight votes in Iowa, they suddenly are a national phenomenon. I am not as pessimistic as you are. You're looking forward to those debates. Yes. You're going to watch them as, all, all 72 all of them. Seven, all 85 uh, I'll, I'll be watching. I'm not as pessimistic as you about the debates because there's an important issue that has to be worked through, which is, does the Democratic Party remain a center party or does it veer to the left? And I think this is the moment to debate it. It's a healthy debate for the Democratic Party to have. In the past, when the left has succeeded, it has not succeeded when it has put forward its own candidate as the nominee. The best example of that would be McGovern in 72. It has succeeded as it did in the 1930s when the left was very, very strong in American society and did not get their nominee nominated but were strong enough in the ranks so as to pull Roosevelt to the left. And one of the outcomes of this is that a centrist candidate could emerge, but with a big debt to the left. And out of that, a new kind of democratic coalition may emerge. And I think the healthy future of the Democratic Party requires not it simply regaining office, but beginning to redefine itself relative to the new time in which we are living. I completely take that. I mean, I am genuinely thinking about the structural problem of the actual way these debates are televised. With that number of candidates, there's so little time for anyone to say anything that we know that it's more that you can blow it than that you can capture it unless you're a Trump. I mean, unless you have that genius for theatre, and maybe one of these people will, I don't know, but I doubt it. It's much more likely to be this incredibly irritating and stultifying thing where in their three minutes that they each get in the course of a debate, they're frantically trying to goad the others into saying the thing that ends their candidacy. Right. But it's also going to depend on how many of of these candidates can engage in effective fundraising. I mean, again, this goes back to Trump. Trump was able to do it last time during the Republican primaries without scarcely raising any any money at all and that gave him a certain freedom in the debates and to engage in the political theatre in which he did now he could say you know the rules of the game have changed not just because of Trump but because of Sanders last time not taking corporate money essentially but it's going to be interesting to see what the approach to fundraising of these democratic candidates are are they going to go down the Sanders route which might keep quite a lot of them in the race for a long time or some of them are going to try to look for financial advantage in the hope that it actually will peel off some of the others quite quickly and I think all the things that people thought that they understood about the importance of fundraising and money last time were basically thrown out of the window not just by Trump but by Sanders and we don't know how it's going to be this time yet. One last question. We'll need to come back to this because it's such a big question, but it relates to the other thing that Trump has been doing recently that we haven't talked about, which is trying to reconfigure American foreign policy in Syria, the announcement that he was going to withdraw American troops, and now the sort of various forms of hedging of that. And Helen, you mentioned Lindsey Graham as someone you say will take Trump's side on the impeachment question. But there's also that other issue about Trump's relationship with the quote-unquote Republican foreign policy establishment. Where do you think we stand on that now? As Trump, I mean, it, it feels like it's another of his bold steps that has had to be rowed back on. He is in retreat. I don't think that there's any doubt about that. And reportedly, he, he went into retreat after a long lunch with Lindsey Graham, you know, who gave him the usual Republican establishment speak about the importance of Iran and 
threats to Israel. Do you think uh, he also said in that lunch, I will back you in all the other fights you're having, but you need to be careful that you don't lose me on this? I think that this is an important... I'm not saying whether Lindsey Graham said We don't know that, what was said, said thing, But I think that this is an important part of the political calculation that Trump faces. Because if you look at what's happened to him on the Syria issue and the, the Russia issue, essentially each time where he's tried to make a move to pull back from Syria and to establish more cooperative relations with Russia, he's been yanked back in. And it would have seemed that he was defeated on the Syria issue last year to the point where he started talking different language himself about Syria. And then he seemed to change gear again and say, no, I'm going to stick my neck out. It cost him Mattis. It's clear that he's not supported by Secretary of State or his National Security Advisor about this. He's a long way out on a limb on this Syria position. And he has got to keep these people on side if he wants to defend himself against what may be coming in terms of impeachment. I think, though, the other part of, the, of this issue is, is what is going on in, in Syria itself and whether it's um, a viable policy position to take in view of the crisis that's ongoing in Syria, including Israel's military involvement in, in Syria. So the worse it looks in terms of things going awry in Syria, the harder it's going to be for him. Now, staying in Syria is just as problematic in terms of policy terms. There's no good way out for American policy, given where it's got to in Syria, because it's essentially been defeated. It, you know, The Obama administration committed the United States to engage in regime change by indirect means, and it not only failed, it brought the Russians back. So there are no good policy choices. But I do think he has to, from his point of view, find a way of balancing what he wants to do in foreign policy with the domestic constraints around him. And when there are no good policy choices, there is a big difference between the one that you own and the one that's the default. He would own the withdrawal policy. If he rose back on that, he doesn't own the policy. It's the default. Yes, and he certainly has been constrained by the foreign policy establishment, both in regard to Russia and, and Syria. It's kind of an embarrassing profile for the world. It's it's more the behavior of a monarch being constrained by his ministers than a democratic model. And uh, it's encouraging that there is some foreign policy establishment that's constraining him, but he's also demonstrated a willingness to strike out against it. And we have to keep on reminding ourselves that the foreign policy crisis, there's several slow-brewing ones, and Syria is, is a forever one. But a foreign policy crisis that's got to take immediate action, immediate judgment, Immediate deployment of U.S. troops, missiles flying between Iran and Israel, for example, we have not reached that point. And it's very scary to think in this chaotic administration how they would handle that. I think there's another risk, though, for the Democrats in the Syria issue is, is because, because it's Trump talking about wanting to pull out of Syria, then the reaction of much of the Democratic Party is, is that must be a terrible thing. And it lines them up with essentially what can be presented as, I'm not saying necessarily correctly, but what can be presented as the old neoconservative position about US intervention in, in, in the Middle East. So Democratic voters, though, in the last two contested primaries have not been keen on the candidate that has been most associated with the neoconservative foreign policy position. And I do think that some of those voters, the ones who voted for Sanders in the primary and then abstained in the general election were part of the reason why Trump won the presidency. This is difficult territory for the Democrats too because it risks making the intense hatred of Trump into something that distorts the way that they think about the underlying substantive issue of US foreign policy, not just in Syria but in the Middle East in general. And that, I think that's the position that, among others, Glenn Greenwald has been taking, which is essentially to warn people, you know, don't let your hatred of Trump blind you to the fact that you may be getting into bed with people you really, really do not want to be in bed with. Right. And here it's important to note, too, a continuity between Obama and Trump trying to redefine a place for America in a world that is clearly changing. Obama's declaration, we will lead from behind, his own reluctance to get involved in hotspots around the world. There clearly is a deeper process of America renegotiating its relationship to the rest of the world. And these are all places where it has to be renegotiated until the larger strategy has been worked out. And so in that respect, Trump is not wrong to raise these questions. We have to have a debate about this in, in terms of America going forward. It's just very hard to have that debate with this administration. We'll tweet the link to the episode that we did after the midterms with Gary. That's at tppodcast underscore. We've got some really interesting episodes coming up. 
John Lanchester talking about his new climate novel, The Wall. We're also planning to be talking to Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's chief of staff, very closely involved in the Northern Ireland peace process, about the ethics of political responsibility and maybe about Brexit too. And we will be on that when and if something moves. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. But we also didn't talk about whether there'll be a challenger to Trump, which presumably there will be. There will be, I right. Um, right. We can do that next time. You also didn't give us your Super Bowl theory. Super Bowl? You were going to give us a Super Bowl theory? Yeah. Uh, the Super Bowl is like the World Cup in America. It has that significance and prestige. Only it happens every year, uh, not once every four years. But somewhere upwards of 200 million Americans will be watching the Super Bowl. Not 200 million. That would be... 200 million will be watching in one form or I'm going to, I'll bet you that it's more like 120. <laughs> okay, well, between 100 and 200. <laughs> never, never, been good on, never been that good on my numbers. Uh, but uh, yeah. three, three digits in the, in, in the millions, right? A big chunk. Uh, and uh, the, the, a seat at the Super Bowl is one of the most coveted seats of a public event in America. And they become so expensive that only the rich and the corporations can partake of them. And they mostly fly in private jets to get to the Super Bowl. And all the mayor of Atlanta has to do, or the air traffic controllers has to do, is to say, we can't accommodate private jets for this Super Bowl. This is a constituency that Trump listens to. If Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, gets on the phone and says, Donald, open up the damn government. I can't get my plane into Atlanta. Neither can any of my friends. He will do it. The airspace of America is where this could be resolved very quickly. So you have two slogans, workers of America unite and NFL owners of America unite. Unite, yes. (laughs) Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.